Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Michelle Pfeiffer. Well, uh, Mr. Pfeiffer. Is that Scotch over there? The last thing Barley Blair wanted was to be a hero. Is that Katya? That's her. You remember her now? No such luck. She visited the British Council's audio fair in Moscow. If you love peace, take this to England to Mr. Scott Blair. The only thing Kacharlova wanted was to change the world. It is better that you smile. You can't think of any reason why a Russian book editor called Katya Oliver should risk her neck to send you a manuscript. Who said risk her neck? The Russia House. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pfeiffer Fridays, where we walk you through the films of one Michelle Pfeiffer and every F-word automatically has a silent P. I'm Jerry Downey. And I'm Michael McLean. And today we are covering 1990s The Russia House, featuring Sean Connery, Roy Scheider, James Fox, John Mahoney, and, of course, Le Pfeiffer as Yekaterina Borisovna Orlova, or as your dad calls her, Katya. <laughs> I wish we had um, Katya Zamolochkova with us today to spice this up for us. And I, I wish that valuable Russian um, I wish that I had had the forethought to bring a fan out here so we could at least get a snap after that. Yeah. That was a mistake on my part. It's okay. I don't have a fan. I have I have a huge drag race fan from the Work the World Tour. Really? That bitch snaps. It scared people at, at the concert when that bitch snaps. Even when, oh my God. Because I got it and we went right to the concession line and I was already in because it was my birthday. So I was plastered by that point. Okay. And I we were in that concession line and I was feeling it and I snapped that fan and heads spun. And I was just like, oh, we shouldn't do that. <laughs> Okay, lesson learned. You, know, you should have kept doing that and just clack, just, clack, 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 clack all night. Just trained them. Like, it's fine. It's fine, gays. Listen to the fan. This is the sound you like. This is what you want. <laughs> if I were doing this on a stage with a reveal, you would be gagging. Honey, honey if, you had, if you had been in that concession line, if, if you had been in that concession line and just did a number with that fan, nobody would be. Anyway, the Russia House. Never seen it. Never heard of it. No, it's it's one of those that I remember. I feel like we maybe Sean Connery was someone we did for Six Degrees, or he was a shorter vantage point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember one of our listeners was just said something about Sean Connery, and I was just like, oh, that's right. The Russia House is a thing. It's just. It's once again, sort of, kind of like, well, it's like how we talked about with Tequila Sunrise being between two shiny things of Married to the Mob and Liaisons. This is between Baker Boys and uh, Frankie and Johnny, which is a movie that has my heart. So it's another one of those that is between two very shiny things for me. Yeah. Yeah, I'd never heard of it until this project. I think I pulled out the Russia house, I think, for the Roy Scheider of it all. He yes. was my connector at one point. I, again, I'm not sure where my preconception of this movie came from. I thought it was um, a contemporary adaptation of um, 
Uncle Vanya or like the cherry orchard or some Chekhov play. <laughs> Maybe it's because like A Thousand Acres is based on King Lear, if I'm not mistaken. So, so any movie you're not really aware of of Michelle's yeah, like, must be based off a play. <laughs> that must be a play. And a fair assessment, and we've got we've got Tajillion, we've got Frankie and Johnny, we've got her spray, we've got lots of movies that are based on plays in her oeuvre. We do. So am I wrong for assuming that she's doing a contemporary checkoff? I, I just I do love the assumption. I'm I'm a fan of the assumption. I even told a guy that I'm seeing that, you know, there's actually, because he really loves Chekhov. Mm. It's like, there's a movie that we're going to be talking about that I think you would be really interested in. It's based on a Chekhov play, I think. Misleading people. <laughs> Michael McLean. I don't understand. I love that I'm you told him. I love that you told him this before knowing anything about the movie. Yeah. He, yeah. I probably got him excited for no reason. <laughs> Oh, oh no. Um, it's not. It's not a checkoff play. Disappointment, Jerry. We've got we've got the John LeCure of of it all. This man has got the espionage market cornered. So many of his things have been made into film and TV. And I wasn't sure when when he started writing, but I think I saw this was his twelfth novel and he was already so popular they grabbed the rights to this when it it hadn't even been published yet and it was going to be a movie so yeah, still still in manuscript form and they were just like cool russia house gonna be a movie let's do it it's he is really kind of like the answer to the espionage's answer the, or the genre's answer to like a john grisham i can only think of nicholas sparks and john grisham as like these writers that can you know almost seem to get film rights attached to every book they write. And I, I recognize like, I, and it's funny, they're, they're titles that I've turned away from or have started but never finished, like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, never finished it. I heard of that mini series they did of The Little Drummer Girl, because it had Florence Pugh in it. Mm. Oh, of course. Um, what else? There was another title that I was um. Did you see Constant Gardener? Yeah, which to me, that surprised me because I watched that one all the way through and I think I liked it <laughs> whenever I watched it. But um, that was a surprising one to me. I was like, oh, that was a watchable one for me. See, I, I think the only three that I've seen, including this one, is Constant Gardener and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. And I've come to the conclusion that no matter what, I will never not be lost at least once in a Le Carre adaptation, and I will never not feel stupid at least once. I, I, I guess that's just the barometer that they've done their job correctly, is I feel like an idiot at least once. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, you kind of, much like those other two, it's kind of like, well, if you aren't the, the, the male protagonist, don't trust anyone. Every, everybody else, if you're not Connery, Ray Fiennes, or Gary Oldman, don't trust him. Yeah, pretty much. I read The Constant Gardener in high school after the movie came out. Yeah. And I remember enjoying the book. I think I actually enjoyed the book more than the movie, if I'm remembering correctly. It seems like he's a fantastic writer. I've never read him myself, but... Um... But it, 
it's kind of like how you feel watching the movies. It's extraordinarily cerebral. And I remember sort of having to at times go back and read a couple of pages to be like, okay, did I actually get everything they're handing to me? Because you think of, you know, some, someone like a John, a John Grisham, which is more popcorn fodder. And that's not a negative. I, I love me some John Grisham. I love the John Grisham movie adaptations. It's great. But the LeCure ones are always very full of information. And they love throwing the information at you at a pace with which you may not be ready to retain all of it. Yeah. And it's never going to be very exciting. And by the end of the movie, you're probably going to think, was there a point? Yeah. But it, they're never they're never bad movies, which is which is the weird part. They're usually well made. They're always well cast, but they're just ah. Yeah, it seems like they are catering to a specific, maybe the demographic that is too smart for John Grisham, maybe or or you know your grandfather who's really into Russian history. You know, that's what also makes me feel like an idiot because. I'm watching this and it's like, I, I'm, I so have no idea what is going on in Russia at this time in history. And so I'm trying to piece together what I can and um, do a little bit of digging, but it's like, it really does make you feel like I really shouldn't have fallen asleep that day in history class. Or that it's just like, wow, I'm, I'm being penalized for not having lived through the cold war. Yeah. This is what I get for not going to Russia that one time. <laughs> I will, I mean, at least based off this and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, like the, the Russians are quote unquote bad because we're, we're seeing it from a British American perception during the Cold War, essentially. So of course the Russians are, are bad in this instance. They also seem like they are behind the times they're they're almost in last place in the nuclear race is that i got the sense in this movie that at least with the kind of all the with the manuscripts that are being bounced around from agency to agency that what we're getting is that that are the russians not as advanced as the the british and americans think they are is that right or I think that's the threat is they don't know. Okay. So, so we that, know. That, like every, everyone's playing mind games with everyone else and there's misinformation and, and spies and no one knows what the fuck is going on. That's why that shopping list at the end was so important is yeah. it was essentially to try and fetter out what exactly the Russians had and what they knew because no one knows anything. And that seems to be the the danger point in all of these movies is that everyone thinks they know, but they don't know. And it, that's why I loved Roy Scheider's monologue at the end where he's just like, people keep asking him questions and all he does is, I don't know. I don't know. I'm like, I'm with you, Betty. I am, I am right there with you that I do not know. And I don't think it's, is that interesting to you as a film watcher? No. Yeah. I'm I'm like, this just sounds, I wanted to kind of watch a movie where you think the stakes are going to be raised at some point. 
and I just kept on thinking that um, there's got to be more danger. There's got to be more threat here. And I think it is probably more just about the kind of the mind games at play, the um, everybody's duping everybody. Who can you trust? It's all about that psychological, the psychological factor, really. But yes. I was really hoping for more of a amp it up, please. I, I really can't do much here with your I don't knows and these uncertainties. They're not very exciting to me. You kind of want it to be an actual thriller. Yeah. In that sense of the word and be yeah. thrilling. Yeah. And it's it's not. And not to, you know, crap on what Lucari's done and what he's done for the genre. And I write these stories. I think for the people who want these stories and the people who love them, I think this definitely serves... Um, his fans well, but I think for newbies like me, it's not very, it's not very exciting. And I think that's why the novels are so popular is he is a great writer, but it does seem to be fairly common with adaptations of his works, particularly films, that- Translation. Yeah, the screenwriters seem to lean into that cerebral tone and almost make it more complicated than it is on the page because you can't get the entirety of a 700 page novel into a two hour movie. It's not going to happen. So you cut and you slice and eventually, eventually you have to explain it to an audience like they're an idiot mm -hmm. for, for something as intricate as this is. What I, what I don't like about this movie is they don't, it, it takes until Connery's letter at the very end to actually lay it out. Like we're dumb about what's going on. And if it had been peppered like that a little bit more consistently through the film itself, it might've been more engaging. Yeah, because I, uh, to be honest, I was following along with, with Wikipedia for most of the movie just to make sure I was, because I was, I had a pretty good sense of where we were and what was happening, but I did have to kind of follow along and be like, okay, I got that, I got that, I got that. And um is it the Tom Stoppard of it all that's a little bit, that's to blame for how overly complicated it is? I think so. Okay, I think I'm, so. I mean, again, you're, you're certainly starting off with what I can only assume is a very intricate, complex novel. And then you hire a playwright screenwriter who loves his abstract and loves his complexities if you will as well and i th i think he muddles it in in my opinion i i think it lacks a lot of straightforwardness uh when that could be called for i think some of the dialogue is very clunky in fact reading that a good number of reviews kind of called the movie out on not having a good screenplay made me happy <laughs> because it made me feel a little bit better about not quite connecting all the dots with this one. Uh, so yes, I would, I would say that Stoppard's screenplay is a, a hindrance to, to enjoying the film for me. I know some of my favorite lines that, uh, I think when it's, when Michelle and um, Connery are arranging their first meeting, she asks, well, how will I know what you look like? 
that's my Russian accent. And Connery says, I look like a large unmade bed with a shopping bag attached. And then later on, Michelle says, I think it is clear to a hedgehog that you are being a little childish. Lines like that, that just are a little bit like, skirt. Yeah. <laughs> hmm? Huh? <laughs> I won't say, at the very least, I got a giggle out of Connery saying, Lucian, your girdle married you. I don't know why that line tickled me and it was a complete throwaway line. Do that again. <laughs> just, just looks up at this guy and just goes, Lucian, your girdle married you. And it just, it tickled me. It really did. Yeah. You've been sitting on this Connery impression for a while. I, I have no reason to bust out a Sean Connery impression. Ever. Ever. But yeah, that that little throw throwaway line is is what tickled me the most in, in this movie for, for no reason. It has no bearing on the plot. It has nothing to do with anything, but I I loved that line. <laughs> oh my God. If, if I could just get you to do the rest of this episode in a Connery voice, I didn't think it would completely just leave us in in shambles. He um, is he is in full Sean Connery gruff Scotsman mode. I I need to check and see something because I don't know if I've really seen much of Sean Connery's work, to be quite honest with you. Are you not a James Bond person? Um I came to James Bond really late. Sure. I came to it with the Daniel Craig movies. So he, that is my first and only James Bond at this point. Other than James Bond, the first ones that pop in my head are Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And I know I saw The Untouchables back in college, but it's it's been a while for that one. So yeah, it's uh yeah, so my experience with him is and my then my I think it's only um the Daryl Hannah sketch when he um when Daryl Hannah plays him on Jeff on the SNL. I'm sorry, who? What's his name? Daryl Hammond? There you go. Did I say Daryl Hannah? You did. <laughs> I was like, I, I know that Anel Dupuis did, did not do a Sean Connery impression on SNL. We're going to try that again. Daryl Hammond. That's, who, that's, <laughs> that's, my, that's my Sean Connery reference. Now that we're, you know, tw- 25 minutes or so in, do you want to give a synopsis of this a shot? I, I do believe it's your turn. Oh, God. Well... So Sean Connery plays, can you, can you just, can you say his name for me? Can you, Bartholomew Scott Blair, can you give me a, a Sean Connery impression? Name is Barley. Bartholomew Barley. Scott Blair. Bartholomew Scott Blair. Yep. Lucian, your girdle married you. I'm Bartholomew Scott Blair. <laughs> Barley for short. Um, that was very Kate Hepburn. <laughs> Sean Connery is seeing the loons in this one. Norman. Norman, the loons. Um, My knight in shining armor. Our poor listeners this episode, please stick with us. I just, I, I really shouldn't have my coffee over off 
off off to the side because I think that's really what's doing me in. Um, so Barley is um is a British publisher, and he went on a writer's retreat in rural region of Russia. And so he meets um, someone named Dante and they hit it off. They share the same worldviews about- Glasnost. There we go. How would you define that word, Jerry? I mean, I think, I, I, I don't know how to define that, but I know it boils down to decency. Mm-hmm. I, I believe at least that's the word they keep throwing around because sort of the linchpin of this entire ideological setup between the two of them is him making a deal with Connery that says, if I get to be a hero, you have to honor that by being a decent man. And so where Michelle comes in is she is um, the go-between for Dante and Barley. And she's giving him his, Dante's kind of manifesto on um, the Russian nuclear power. And she, Katya gives it to somebody else. Nikki Landau, if I remember that name. She gives it to um, somebody else and he in turn gives it to the British authorities, the okay. British intelligence. And so then they bring in Connery and start to question him about his involvement in this project. And so it seems like the British and American intelligence agencies coming together to figure out what exactly is this that Connery and Katya are in possession of. Is this a threat? Is this nothing? Where's Dante? We want to get our hands on Dante. You know, it's all about, you know, wanting to be first, wanting to get the jump on, you know, each kind of mind game is just to um, beat the others in the end. It's so it's ridiculous. But yeah, that's how it, like we said in the beginning, it's all, it's all of like, I don't know. Well, we don't, we don't know what's going on until we can really get this man in our faces and see really what he does know. And then also Barley and Katya fall in love. Because of course. Because of course. Yeah, I mean that. Did they they get really basically what the plot was to you? (laughs) Yeah. And ends with, ends with them finding out that the manifesto was misinformation anyway. Mm -hmm. And Connery basically turning over British American intelligence to the Russians in order to get Katya out alive. And I want they, to destroy my country. You don't open people's letters, which is like the moral of this story. That's one of his last lines of dialogue is telling his British pal, don't open people's letters. The ending felt weird to me. I oh. almost wish that they had ended with the shot of him in the apartment just sort of waiting. That happy reunion on the boat with her running running into his arms and then this sort of happy jazzy score comes in under it. I was like, this this feels weird, y'all. 
that sounded like it may have been like a studio thing where it's like we have to we want to see them reunited at the end well and i mean he's he makes it clear that he's expecting her but for a film that for two hours is sort of ridden the wave of ambiguity every chance it got it just felt like such an such an odd shoehorned ha happy ending it, it didn't feel right yeah. and of course it's in slow motion and we've got these strange lens flares lighting moments that just feel like we're in a completely different we've taken a turn yeah so with the michelle of it all uh, i'm really proud of her because i think her russian accent is really spot on i think it's i was so impressed with that. i was like oh dang girl she really she really did that she really worked with her dialect coach um because and and they do a very good job of I don't want to say de-glamming her, but you know, she they really make her feel kind of like a regular Russian woman. It remind me again, it's sandwiched between Frankie Baker, and, Bonnie and Baker and Boy. Baker Boys. From what I assume is some quite a quite a glamorous moment in in Baker Boys, where she's really just looking gorgeous, to kind of a little bit more of a toned down, you know, she is a working woman and she is a there's no nonsense here. And they yeah. really lean into that. And she leans into that too with her performance. They, yeah, they do a really good job of keeping her as inconspicuous as possible. Good word for, yeah, inconspicuous. That's a really good word to describe her. Um, you know, with her kind of plain, I love that coat she wore, that kind of plaid, I wanted that coat. Yeah, um, yeah they really make it, a, they really do a good job of making her blend in because she has to. It's all about how she needs to blend in to kind of keep keep herself safe um, with what she's doing. I remember the only kind of moment of levity for her seems to come from when she when she laughs at at um, Barley using the word blurb. I think that's the only time I really see her fully like laugh in the movie. I don't even think when he declares his love for her, she's not even she is phased, but you know she's not completely blown over by that yeah she barely smiles in this one it's it's yeah. a very it's a very closed off mm -hmm. character for her which great to see great to see her do this and see her play this type of reserved person and i still think she does find good moments i think of the moment when he does tell her she loves her he loves her and she stops she hears it but she keeps on going with what she's saying. And she's trying to keep going about her task in the kitchen while he's declaring his love. And I really liked that moment for her where she's trying to push against this, but then, you know, can't. And it's funny, even, even when she's like accepting it, she's still not completely falling into his arms. You know, that's not the woman she's playing. So. I did not think that they had any chemistry know each other yeah it it sort of felt like they were lovers because they were lovers in the book and it's part of the story and the script so that's what we're doing but it it they just had no chemistry together uh i actually i think my favorite scene of hers was the scene in the bell tower about the 40 minute 
mark where they're sort of, I think it's their first really in-depth meeting where they're sort of laying cards on the table and she's telling him how she used to be lovers with Yaakov, who is Dante, who is all these other names. It seemed to be the the scene where she had the most levels Mm -hmm. uh, to play because she kind of got to go in her own little reverie for the flashbacks where they put her in a god-awful wig then it she got kind of not angry but frantic I get I guess as a word her her, it was the scene that had the most modulation in her voice uh, where she seemed to be able to play a lot more levels with that and her responses and her engagement with Connery and I really liked that because other than that kind of like we said it's a very closed off performance as it needs to be because again who do we trust in this and she doesn't know who to trust either so her cards are very close to her chest for 80% of the movie Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I think that's why I enjoyed that scene most for her is because it seemed to be her most open moment which which is nice yeah, for sure. But they, they just don't have any scenes to her and Barley together to really buy into the fact they're falling in love or that there's much of a connection even on Barley's end. I think he is, he is interested in her, but there's also so much going on in these scenes that, you know, he's wearing wires. There's so much going on for him that it's almost like communicating affection is kind of the last note on the list to play there was a lot of telling rather than showing in terms of their falling for each other because like the lie detector test where they ask him are your actions because of your love for katya and that's the deviation from his truth and it's just like okay yeah i sure yeah you got a face value but yeah there's just not a lot to really not a lot to delve into with her besides I there was an article posted I guess this past week that was an interview with her about French exit and as as everything is right now really um, and really sort of delved into the roles she's taken in her life and she sort of went in depth about surprising people and and surprising herself and said that even back when she really didn't have the agency at that point to be making choices the few she got she always tried to choose something different and something that she hadn't done before and that sort of I think that feeds into why she would have chosen this role which yeah I kind of feel like on paper would have come off a little thankless just in terms of what we get on screen, but she hadn't been in a a spy movie. It gave her the opportunity to do a new dialect and work with Connery because he was attached very early on to the point where he even had casting approval for the movie. So I think she got to, to stretch a lot of muscles because Mm -hmm. again, sort of like we've talked about, other movies she usually has a lot of things about her performances that we love which is sort of the openness and the the depth and making something out of nothing and she sort of had to go go against that here because we're not supposed to be able to tell what she's thinking a majority of 
the movie. So thinking back on that interview, the, the choice of this role makes sense from that perspective. For sure. And maybe even the director as well was alluring because looking at his, as his filmography before the Russia house, Fred, do you, would you pronounce it Shapisi? Shapisi. Mm-hmm. He had really good success with working with actresses, especially with Meryl, because he'd done A Cry in the Dark before this, and then right. Plenty a few years before. And um, I have not seen Meryl in A Cry in the Dark, but I have seen her in Plenty, another very boring movie. <laughs> um, and But I think that could have also been, you know, he knows how to direct an actress. He's had great success with, with Meryl before this. Maybe that was a, a factor. You know, she was going to work with a director who had a hand in with intelligent and um, and really uh, smart material. It seems. Yeah. So I think that could have also been a factor. But um, absolutely. When I saw that he had directed this, I was like, I've seen movies of his, and I don't think I've been big fans of movies that I've seen of his. And then I looked and I was like, oh, he did plenty. Okay. I think I know what's about to happen today. Which is which is weird because right after this, his next one is Six Degrees of Separation, which I love that movie. That almost feels like a departure for him too. To Very much so. <laughs> Again, great, great luck with his actresses with Stalker Channing in that movie. So this was also only the second movie to be filmed in what was still the Soviet Union at that point before its dissolution. Sorry to also to film in to film in Moscow, I would have, yeah. yeah. I get it. <laughs> I wanted I would have wanted to go there too. Anyway, go on. No, there was uh I saw that there was an interview with Esquire Michelle did about this movie because she said she sort of needed to leave her political identity at the door for this one because mm. she went on set and the way the rules in the USSR were at that point, none of the Soviet extras were allowed to be fed by the crew. Mm. And she didn't like that and left, left the set and was very upset by that rule uh for the for the country uh but then said basically i i think they even said like soviet officials had to be called in to sort of explain the reasoning and situation for that and she basically said i was thinking about it like an american and whether that idea was right or wrong who am i to come in and sort of lay down the law that this is how they should be doing things in their own own country when I'm just here to film a movie so sort of had to leave her identity at the door and then said she was at least able to enjoy the the Soviet Union more once she had put those thoughts aside but it it was a very interesting set of quotations to read about her experience on this one yeah it must have been a big culture shock very much so and I can't say that I would have reacted differently if I had been in there and you know I'm so, so being so used to how things run on an, on an American film set yeah coming into a country with completely new rules yeah god bless her I'm sure she if she could have she would have just 
fed all these extras herself, she could have. But I wonder why, why was that a rule? I'd have, to, I'd have to go more into it. It was only one of two movies to ever film in the Soviet Union? While it was still the Soviet Union, yes. Oh. Okay. The other one was in 88, Red, Red Heat. Okay. Anything, any other thoughts you have about the movie before we sort of make our pivot to awards and discussions? I think we've, we mentioned it a little bit with the, with Tom Stoppard kind of muddling up the screenplay a little bit. Not a little bit, but you know, just muddling up the screenplay. And I just was so conf for, confused, so frustrated by his, you know, at the beginning of the movie, you start with this voiceover of um, a conversation that we'll see maybe 10 minutes out later. But, you know, we have a, the snippet of dialogue playing over a tracking shot of Michelle going into the book fair. We're gonna see this bit of dialogue and a full scene of it in the next 10 minutes. And then we're gonna take another snippet of another scene. It's almost just something like shifting things around for no other, for no reason, as far as I'm concerned. There's no reason that we need to have a voiceover to almost introduce Michelle into the movie. Right. Um, there's no reason for that. You can just have that whole scene later on where you're, where you're already gonna have those, those lines of dialogue. It's not like it's told from a different perspective. Uh, the, the, this is very yeah. much focused on Sean Connery and, and Barley and all of that. So it's not yeah. like, it's not like any of the other agents have any sort of specific POV yeah. in, in this. You're just sort of, you hear the dialogue again and think, oh, that this is this is what was playing over the beginning and that's that's all you get from it yeah so like what in the world was this decision why did you I, I have no clue what the point was there because yeah it's not as if yeah this is from a flashback moment you know we're I didn't expect them to do the entire amount of dialogue because I thought we were going to hear the, the first two lines and think, oh, now we've sort of reached our, our combo point. Like, I remember this from the beginning. Now we've reached that point. But they just did the whole thing. It's a no for me, love. It's a no. Was there, have we watched another movie where, with another Pfeiffer movie where, is it almost like a Robert Redford and up close and personal a little bit where, kind of like a reluctant hero, a re you know, kind of I don't want to do, as, as I was trying to figure out Sean Connery's character and figure out, okay, who is Bartholomew Scott Blair? He doesn't believe he's a hero. He wants to be more, he doesn't want to be loyal to his country. He wants to be loyal to Russia where his heart is. Maybe I've just seen this character before in so many other movies, but I was thinking, I was like, can I relate this back to another Pfeiffer co-star? I think that would be the closest comparison comparison of the ones we've watched so far yes okay but I mean that is the thing about his character is he's not he's not a government agent he's he's not he he may have sympathies with Dante and his ideological beliefs but he's not a government agent he's a book publisher he's and they ordinary guy right and they sort of lasso him in and put him in this situation and sort of expect him to play by the rules. And mm -hmm. that's 
that sort of feels like why he's able to screw them over so easily is he's just like I fell in love with this woman and I don't I don't belong to you I I get to do (laughs) what I want so similar to to a little bit of Robert Redford up close and personal but he's not Robert was really tied to a tv studio and that was his job so yeah yeah I just had some kind of said a little bit of like who does he remind me of I've seen this man before that's really all I only had one page of notes for this whole movie so that's all I really had to say about it and I will say that aside from the the sort of jazzy sidebar at the end the score for this movie is badass oh yeah especially when they when you find that he is a jazz musician too when Sean Connery character is a jazz man I I love this I kind of wanted to I was like can I find this somewhere I would love to play this around the it's it's a rainy Sunday here in New York so it's Mm. very like was the perfect kind of background music for this kind of day so yeah I the score really helps you stay engaged because even if you don't feel that the stakes are amping up via the script the score at least sort of gets this drive to it to keep you there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, this this was one of the first ones, not that we haven't watched movies of hers with really good scores, but it felt like the score for this one was very integral to its success for, mm-hmm. for me personally. Yeah, but it didn't just go the way of um, sly spy movie score that it really gave it more... Um, made it more, it was more distinctive. Yeah, it had a personality to it. Yeah. So Michelle was nominated for a Globe. This was her third consecutive Globe nomination after Married to the Mob and Baker Boys. Well, what a, just a, what a great streak she had there. That's amazing. Six, 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 six consecutive. That's incredible. Yeah. And she was up against three future nominees that year for the Oscar, which was Kathy Bates for Misery, Angelica Houston for The Grifters, and then Joanne Woodward for Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. Mm-hmm. And then it was her, and the fifth one was her, what's, what seems to be a very regular competitor for her, which is Susan Sarandon for White Palace. And then our other two future Oscar nominees for that year were in the musical comedy section, which was uh, Julia for Pretty Woman and Meryl for Postcards from the Edge. For some reason, I had it in my head that um, because Annette was not Annette Benning was nominated for supporting actress for The Grifters. Is that right? She was. Okay. For some reason, I had it in my head that it was reversed. I haven't seen The Grifters, so I don't know why I'm even like you would know. But I mean, is it, are they more of like co leads in that or? I know. I really do. Annette Benning has a very significant role in that movie to where if you wanted to argue her for co-lead, I'd listen to your arguments and politely disagree. Um, I think that Houston and Cusack are very much the leads of that movie with Benning in a very heavy, heavily featured supporting role. Okay. Fabulous. Still, um, my, still my favorite nomination, Oscar nomination for Annette is Grifters. Like she had been nominated up against almost anyone except Whoopi. Mm-hmm. I would be heavily campaigning that she should have won. What was I going to say about this category? Uh, so yes, yeah, so I've only seen Misery, Pretty Woman, and Postcards from the Edge. So I've not seen The Grifters yet. 
I've n- I never heard of Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, so. That, um, that's the one I'm missing too. I've seen the other four. Out of those four though, that's a pretty, it seems like a pretty strong group of four. The female nominees across both categories of the 1990 Oscars are so good. Yeah. Just such a badass lineup of nominees at that, at that Oscar ceremony. And it really, you know, I haven't seen Mr. and Mrs. Bridge and I haven't seen White Palace going back to the Globes, but I don't mean this in a negative way, even though it's going to sound like it. Michelle's nomination at the Globes this year almost feels filler to me, Mm -hmm. like still riding high and, you know, having the stature of the nomination for Married to the Mob, the win for Baker Boys, very much riding that sort of wave of Golden Globes love. Mm-hmm. But Russia House wasn't recognized in anywhere else. No. And I'd be hard-pressed to say that I even find her a lead in Russia House. I think she's lead in stature, and I think she's lead in billing, certainly, because she's above the title with Connery and featured on the poster. I kind of find her to be a supporting role in the overall proceedings though. Yeah, because it's not much, I'd say probably 15, 20 minutes of screen time in total. And a lot of it is backloaded, which is which is helpful in, in saying that she's a lead. But even then she's very much there to support Connery's storyline. Even her being the one that sort of kicks the action off by delivering the package, it's still in service to his protagonist role mm-hmm. uh, with, with very little, you know, significant point of view of hers away from him and his storyline. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's one of those that I've, I, I wouldn't say that it's an undeserved nomination because again, she's doing some very interesting things and doing something that's different for her, but it's not a nomination that I, feel particularly passionate about like some of the other ones in her career or even some of the ones that I would say she missed out on or got or got snubbed on this one just sort of feels like a oh good good for her cool this is one that I would maybe switch out for something if I kind of had a switch option you know do you want to trade a golden globe nomination for another golden globe nomination right I would maybe trade this one Well, and of course, it's interesting to think that if not for the whole Orion situation, this one would have been in contention with Love Field in 1990, (laughs) which, which again, in that sense, I'm just like, okay, if you release Love Field in 90 and she's got this one just in the bag for a nomination at very least, is that when you push her to supporting for Russia House? Maybe. Because both of those would be drama at the Globe. Yeah. It was, so is that where we see a focus shift from the, from the studio for this one yeah. to push her supporting if she's already got Love Field on the lock in 1990? Yeah, maybe. But looking at that supporting lineup, I think you just, did you just watch this year for your supporting actress, SmackDown, I believe. She, she would not have gotten in at the Oscars. The... Globes are a little different. The Globes had six supporting actress nominees this year, uh, which, who was the one they were, which Benning was the one missing, which is astonishing to me that Benning missed out on that supporting nomination. 
but they had Shirley MacLaine and supporting for postcards and then Winona Ryder for mermaids yeah. <laughs> as the sixth. Yeah. Um, I mean, it all came out in the wash eventually, but that yeah. is funny that, uh, I don't think she would have, I don't think she would have cracked it even, even with six nominees. I'm not sure she would have cracked that supporting lineup and certainly not the five that were Oscar nominated. There's no way. Because I even think Shirley MacLaine was probably number six in supporting actress. Absolutely. And maybe even Winona would have been number seven with Mermaids and then maybe Michelle number eight. Because at the end of the day, Love Field is a vastly superior performance to this. Yes. So I think if, if they did come out at the same time, I think the push would have been more for, for Love Field. I think that, that would have been just a big push. And then, you know, let's see about Russia House. Yeah. Would have been interesting to see if she would have knocked uh, Woodward out at the Oscars. If, because I, I, I mean, Roberts won the Globe that year and Meryl was on her hot streak and Bates won the Globe and eventually the Oscar and Angelica Houston is phenomenal in the Grifters. So I feel like, I don't feel like those other four were going anywhere. So it, it feels like that fifth spot was Woodward's and it would have been curious to see if, if Michelle could have knocked her out for that fifth spot had it been against Love Field rather than this one. And if, and if it had been like for, if, you know, if Love Field had gotten her through to the, to the nomination, I think she may be like, I was going to say, it's like, she would be number five for compared to her year. She's maybe she, number three. <laughs> right. And that's not knocking the quality of that performance. It's just like, yeah. like we said earlier, the strength of those performances in that year is just unimpeachable it's it's one of it's it's a really it's just a great fucking lineup of, of performances good for it's it's a good for her nomination at the end of the day. i really think it's a good for her i mean i will even if it was a filler nomination do it more nominate her more I've I've seen filler nominations that I would have been like you know what you could have nominated Michelle for that slot yeah. you, you know yeah let's 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 talk about let's talk about how you could have played this let's talk about where you could have put Michelle Pfeiffer you, you know Globes you, you you put Cameron Diaz in that supporting instead of Michelle and White Oleander I think we need to have a conversation let's let's, let's converse where you could have put Michelle that's going to be the name of this segment the award segment now it's going to be let's talk about where you could put Michelle Pfeiffer our thesis <laughs> uh, uh, is this a movie you would recommend to people where where does it fall on your barometer if you like Lacare, if you like those kind of espionage thrillers, if you liked like if you liked the Constant Gardener, if you liked Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, if that, that that's kind of the movie you liked, um, or the story you liked, yeah, I would say maybe try the Russia House, yeah, um, because it's not my cup of tea by any means, but I think for other people it would be, because um, I don't think it's a poorly done movie, exactly. But, um, just not for me, but I know for other people, for sure. I think it's one of those that accomplishes exactly what it was setting out to. Yeah. For, for all the creatives involved. Mm -hmm. But it is also one I would label a mood movie. Okay. Because I, I, I think if I had watched this on a day where I had been in any sort of bad mood or easily distracted, 
I probably would not have given it as, as much credit as it probably deserves. So that would be my caveat is it's just like, if you're not feeling like paying attention, hang back on this one. It's worth, it's worth the watch, but you got to make sure you're in the mood for it. Yeah. So when I saw the, um, when I saw the description, I was like, oh, I may need to really just like distractions away. Let's click the, definitely <laughs> refocus in, um, with some of the ones that we're talking about coming up. I think, you know, I think we'll be okay. Yeah. But um, with this one, I was like, oh God, Tom Stoppard, John Lacare. I don't know, honey. We might not be able to do the crossword while we're watching this. No, I knew that going in based on my Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy experience that I was just like, even if I'm not necessarily enjoying this one I know if I look away for three seconds it's when they're going to be like this is the name of the guy with the bomb and I'm going to be lost the rest of the movie so I was just like <laughs> like watch the movie do not tear your eyes away from this movie I'll, I'll... <laughs> does that mean we're ready for six degrees of separate of Michelle Pfeiffer yes okay so for those of you joining us for the first time, at the end of each episode, we play a little game called Six Degrees of Michelle Pfeiffer, where we give each other an actor, actress, and have to connect them back to Michelle Pfeiffer via other actors and films in six degrees or less. Michael, would you like to give or receive first? I'll receive first. Okay. So I, <laughs> because of our connection to Katya for this episode. I had drag queens in my head. So mine for you is one of the Priscilla drag queens, uh, Guy Pierce. Okay. What do we have here, eh? Couple of showgirls. <laughs> Guy Pierce, Guy Pierce, Guy Pierce. I get him so mixed up with Hugo Weaving. It's not, it's not funny. I mean, that, that was probably, I, I went between Guy Pierce, Hugo Weaving, and Patrick Swayze. And I thought Swayze would be too easy for some reason. So I was just like, we're gonna go with one of my Priscilla Queens. Oh no, I've just got him in my head going, hip, 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 hooray. Yeah. Great Australian accent, by the way. I don't think I can actually do an Australian accent. I can just impersonate Guy Pierce in okay. Priscilla Queen of the Desert. I was, to say, I was like, do you have a good Australian accent or can you just mimic? I guarantee you if someone cast me in a role that was Australian and they were not pleased with a Guy Pierce impersonation, we would be at a crossroads. Jerry, we really like you to try. Can you not sound like Guy Pierce when you do this accent? Do you want me to stay Australian? Do you want me to stay with this project? <laughs> so you're saying a heavy femi drag queen is not the direction we want for this role this is going to be an issue yeah th this is this is, this is a problem this is not what you wanted okay um this is what we call creative differences <laughs> <laughs> we didn't see eye to eye on the part damn 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 yeah <laughs> Can I use a mini series? 
Does it have to be? Only if you have to. Because <laughs> I'm thinking of him with Kate Winslet in the Mildred Pierce miniseries. Sure. We can we can do miniseries. We can. We've never done that before. We can we can bend it this time. Okay. <laughs> Michael, your poor little face. I'm really just like. I thought your screen had frozen for a couple seconds. Jeez. Oh, Why can't I think of any? Kate Winslet should have like a bajillion six degrees I can go from. Do you remember what we did for our third episode? Of who we who we gave each other there? The uh, the movie we talked about. Oh yeah, so okay, that'll get me there. So Guy Pierce was in Mildred Pierce with Kate Winslet, who was in Titanic with Kathy Bates, who was in Cherie with Michelle. There we go. We love Kathy Bates. We do. It's funny, I was thinking about like with misery, I was going through misery. I was like, what Kathy Kathy Bates? There's gotta be something there with the Titanic. Thank you for. Did did you ever see Animal Kingdom? The, Jackie, uh, Jackie Weaver's nomination back in twenty ten. Okay, that's that's where I got it. He's he's in Animal Kingdom with her. She's in Silver Linings with Lawrence, who's in Mother with Michelle. Oh, fabulous! Okay. Uh, underrated, really awesome movie, Animal Kingdom. Okay. Highly recommend. Cool. Yeah. All right, Buster, what do you got for me? I'm going to give you um, Sally Hawkins. Oh, okay. Sally Hawkins is in loads of... Movies. Mike Lee movies is where I was going. Okay. Uh, Michelle is in... Age of Innocence with good old DDL, who is in Phantom Thread with what should be Best Supporting Actress winner, Miss Leslie Mansville, who is in Vera Drake with Sally Hawkins, playing her mother? Fairly okay. certain. But yeah. Wonderful. Good old Mike Lee. He'll, he'll get you there. Wonderful. I can't wait to rewatch Phantom Thread. Can't cannot wait to rewatch Leslie Manville in that movie. She's she's an aspiration. She's a, she's a role model. I've been meaning to rewatch it one of these days. I'm ready for like the Criterion edition of it. What PTA movies are on Criterion? Are there any? I don't think so. That's wild to me. But I think maybe in the next like 10 years or so we'll probably get, you know, Although if we can put like Wes Anderson movies in the Criterion Collection, like years after they come out. Well, I mean, in, in Marriage Story and... Yeah, the Netflix pipeline of it all, like... Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm shocked that... But there will be blood in the Criterion Collection. Right. That surprises me. I'm shocked the Master hasn't gotten a Criterion yet. That feels like one that would be right up their alley. This is your PSA, listeners, to rewatch Phantom Thread. Whenever you can. Yeah. All right, Pfeiffer fans. This has been another episode of Pfeiffer Fridays. I'm Jerry Downey, and you can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at jerrydowney913. 
And I'm Michael McLean, and you can follow me on Instagram and Letterboxd and Twitter on um, Michael D. McLean. Please remember to rate and review us and be sure to follow and like us on Twitter at Pfeiffer Friday. You can also follow us at Pfeiffer Fridays on Instagram now. Makes us easier to find so we can continue to spread the Michelle gospel to one and all. Thank you for joining us and we will see you again next week for Pfeiffer Fridays. He talks about the great lie. Everything is part of the great lie. Go on. Are you part of the great lie also? Um, what? I think I am also allowed to ask questions. Of course. Ask. Are you Mr. Bartholomew Scott Flair? Oh, for God's sake. Are you? Yes. Are you a publisher? Yes. Are you a spy? No. Are you alone in this, or were you sent by others? I'm alone. I'm alone, and that's the God's truth. <laughs>